2: This is the Starship Sofa, everyone. Welcome, hello, and welcome to Oral Delights Show one hundred and forty. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, what a show. Like, I'd always start off by saying that, but this time today, this, probably out of doing Starship Sova, this show that I'm about to put out there now, or this interview that I'm about to put out now in the Starship Sova interrogations, and I'm so proud of Starship Sova, and just being able, to, I'm proud of myself, just being able to, to bring this interview to you all, well, because it is truly, honestly, honestly One of the best times I've had in my life in science fiction terms. you know, To speak to this legend who is Jack Vance and just to listen to him. You've got to listen to the whole interview because it was just one of the most awe-inspiring times I've had. Just listen to this legend who, 93 years old and he talked for over an hour. And I'm so happy, honestly, to bring this interview to everyone. But not only that, we've got a remarkable story by one of the top leading writers, science fiction writers today, Kim Stanley Robinson as well. So this show is one mean mother of a show. There's only the two sections in it today, but, but, you know, the interview with Jack Vance is over an hour long and the stories are big in as well. So more than enough science fiction goodness. I hope you do enjoy it. Please. Let everyone know about this show. You know, this Jack Vance interview needs to be... Everyone needs to to listen to this and just be humbled by this great man. Just a sweet, gentle guy who just... You know, I just phoned him up. You know, I, I got a contact name, and it was actually through... You know, I don't like to drop names, but it was through Robert Silverberg. I got in touch, you know, I got in touch with Jack Vance's son, and Jack Vance's son says, yes, just fo- phone up, Dad. It'd be lovely to talk to you. And... Oh, he just, you know. It's, it's a strange feeling, trust us, when you just dial up some of these people, you know, and ask these questions. Jack Vance just sat there, and, you know, if you listen, like, you'll, you'll understand what I mean when you listen to the interview and you listen to it like halfway through when actually the 15 questions, I run out of the 15 questions and I just keep on talking. It's just a humbling experience to, to speak to this man. You know, I was so, I came off that telephone just inspired to to be a better person please if you can do one thing for us and tell everyone about this show do you know what I mean we honestly we run on a budget of zero do you know what I mean I've got like the the monthly donations but it's it's all just down to everyone's hard work and I'm, like, so proud of it, do you know what I mean? And it'd be just nice to get that word out, you know, and this is the kind of quality, honestly. You know, you listen to this story and the narration, do you know? It is by Peter Seaton who is just a world-class narrator. You know, I'm so proud to be able to kind of bring this show, you know, with the kind of next to nothing in butchered terms, you know, and deliver, I think, the best science fiction podcast out there, do you know what I mean? Listen to it and let us know what you think. This interview with Jack Vance is up for a Hugo Award for best related work with his autobiography. This is me, Jack Vance. And he does get he gets a little plug-in now and again as well. So and I'm reading that book. I got it, I bought it straight away. The, you know, I think the same night I finished talking to him. I went out over on the Amazon and bought it. It's just a fantastic book. I mean this guy has done everything. So Starship Sova is very proud to see. It. Jack Vance, are you a science fiction writer?
3: Am I a science fiction writer? No longer. I, uh, I, uh, my last science fiction uh, story was called Lurulu, which is five years old, but I just finished writing my autobiography.
2: Tell me about your childhood.
3: I was born in San Francisco and uh... my well, johnny's just now started up the, the vacuum cleaner I don't know if you can hear it or not but anyway uh... my family was quite prosperous uh... yeah i was i don't know how to say this but uh... my family was i hate to use the word wealthy but they were up in Upper upper ranges, and uh, when the the depression, 1929 hit, it hit them pretty hard, and uh, and uh, and things got a little tough. And when I was five, we moved up into the country, and uh, we're supposed to stay there. Just for the summer, uh, myself, and my brothers and sisters. But they rented our house in San Francisco, and we I stayed up there until I oh, for heaven's sake, until I graduated from high school. And uh, after that, I. Uh, those are the days the depression was on there, and uh, after getting out of high school, I went to work picking fruit and ultimately I got a job with a construction company that is, uh, as a laborer, but uh, in the Sierra Nevada mountains building this mining, construction. Then I went to the University of California. I, I stayed there for uh, the Cal till my junior year, and I got bored with it. Or let me think what happened. I think I went to sea. The war was on. I became a merchant seaman until after the war. I went Uh, I would start as an ordinary seaman, then became an able seaman, and cruised all over the South Pacific, backward and forward. Never hit Atlantic too much, except the coastwise run. And then, eventually I came ashore, and spent the rest of my time in uh, Oakland and Berkeley and that's where I am now I'm in the house that, that I built myself from uh, when we moved in here we got the place cheap and uh, I uh, and, and me and Johnny my son We just built ourselves a rather beautiful house here. It's up in the Oakland Hills. And it's quite pleased with it. And that's where I'm calling from now. Sitting here with phone in one hand. Johnny's upstairs. I have two grandchildren. They're in school now.
2: How did you get started in the science fiction genre?
3: When I was a kid, I I subscribed to the Weird Tales magazine. Uh, and they had some very, very good writers in there, namely C.L. Moore, who was one of the really great writers, if not one of the greatest To a lady, and she certainly was an influence on my writing. Hugo Gernsback was publishing this uh, amazing stories, amazing stories quarterly. And in fact, Hugo Gernsback is the name of these Hugo, this is where the Hugo Awards are derived from. As a matter of fact, they're they're going to give out Hugo's. They do it every year, and this year they're having this convention or whatever it is in in Australia in Sydney. And uh, I've been nominated. I don't know that I'll get the Hugo Award or not, but uh, I've been nominated, so I might. I've got two other Hugo Awards. And now I might get another one, and uh, so I'll have to uh, don't have to go to Australia, but uh, I'd sure like to. I, I, I like Australia very much. It's a lovely country, really, Australia, and uh, very nice people there. There, I I is Australia still a dominion or? or or are they totally independent from England? I think they recognize the Queen. Uh, Queen is the uh, the nominal head of the state there. Of course, the Canada and Australia they're independent, but there's just some. Uh, uh, connection with England. I, I think that's the way it is. So I'm not sure. But, uh, I love England. I'd, I'd very gladly. Uh, if things get too bad here with this horrible, horrible political situation, we got ourselves in there. I don't have a notion. I'd like to migrate to England. I'd like to live in south of England, Devon, or, or uh, Hampshire, or some place like that, or, or even in uh, Cornwall. We drove one time. We got off the
4: uh,
3: a ship in our car, went down to Land's End in Cornwall, and then drove north up to John of Groats. In other words, land then the John O'Groats. Yeah, and then we drove over the top of Scotland and then down the west coast, Isle of Skye. And then we uh, went to Ireland. We spent, uh, uh, oh, let's see, how long where were we in Ireland? We... You know where Loch Horeb is? You know where Galway is, of course. Well, Galway is at the lower tip of Loch Horeb. We rented a, a little cottage in the north shore of Loch Horeb. We spent the winter there. It was one of the real memorable episodes in our lives. I, On uh, my reading, I, I read... Uh, I don't read any science fiction. I, I, no taste for whatever. I read murder mysteries and detective stories, and I always prefer the English writers. There's some good American writers, but uh, I think uh, I prefer the English writers. Have you ever read any of M. C. Beaton? Well, she lives. She's she's a great writer. She lives in Shropshire. And uh, there's two series. She's got the... Uh, uh, one of them, the uh, locale, is a little village on the, on the west coast of Scotland, a uh, little south of And then there's another... Series she has called the Agatha Raisin uh, series. These are these are fun, but they're the other ones are are better. They they're all got titles like Death of a Snob, Death of a Glutton, Death of a this, Death of a that. But no, you should read them. Uh, there, she's she's just a remarkable reader, a uh, writer. These books are habit forming. There's a lot of other writers I, I could mention, but
2: which single science fiction writer has most influenced your own style?
3: Oh, I can't think of anybody. Uh, really, uh, I must say probably a, a, a Moore, a C. O. Moore, probably.
2: Which book by another author do you wish you had written?
3: Uh, C.L. Moore. She wrote just short stories, as far as I know. I don't think she's ever written any novels at all. But all her work appeared in the old Weird Tales magazine, which I had when I was a, a young fellow, you know, we lived in the country then, and every month I'd walk down to the half mile down to the our, our post office was it was called Rural Delivery, and nobody delivered to our house. We had to go to our mailbox, which is. But anyway, I marched down, I expected that, but look in the mailbox. See if weird tales had come. But I'll tell you another writer uh, who, uh, not a science fiction writer, is Jeffrey Farnell. One of the best writers that's ever existed. Jeffrey Farnell, F A R N O L. He he writes not science fiction, but just kind of uh, historical fiction, Regency stories, but he's, he's he's a marvelous writer. I think they even have, over in England, they have Jeffrey Farnell clubs. Here's a, a, a book of fairy tales called East of the Sun, West of the Moon, but it's the most beautiful book that's ever been printed. The illustrations are Magnificent. Oh, I like uh, I, I like P.G. Woodhouse very much. Um, he's one of my. I think he's a really great writer, and I admire him very much indeed. I I think uh, probably uh, I don't I don't know I can't think of any. There's so many books I I like and admire like the ones I've mentioned already that. I can't think of anything, especially, especially about like more than the
2: others. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer?
3: What question? I, I nothing. I wouldn't be interested. I uh, I I don't uh, I don't like science fiction. I think it's it's. Uh, I uh, I like my own stuff, but I don't I, any, read any science fiction that I admire at all. The only uh, thing I can remember is Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. That's the only thing that sticks in my head here. I admired that book very much, Martian Chronicles. But aside from that, oh, what originally... When I was a kid, first started, there were some, they used to have uh, stories of uh, aliens invading the solar system. Uh, J- John Campbell wrote a, one of these s- series. And Williamson, I wrote another one of those things. But those were published when I was oh 12 14 years old those are uh, I really like those those books there they're exciting but uh, I'm I don't care for science fiction to read myself uh, I don't I, I, I don't read any never have except just picked up Few, but uh, I was my own writing was. You can hear the dog barking there. <laughs> anyway, I am I, sorry to be so vague.
2: For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature?
3: Oh, I don't, because uh, I have written murder mysteries. Yeah, there's four or five mysteries, but uh, they I never they never sold well. I, I, in other words, I didn't make any money off them too much. Got the advance, but I was able to make money off the science fiction, so-called. And uh, I I like my own work. Uh, the uh, I'm not vain exactly, but except that I just I'm pleased with my own stuff, and I can't think of anything else that I I really that I, I really like. I don't don't mean to sound so damn what's the word egocentric. Equi- equi- but it's just the way it is. I think it might apply to practically everybody. That the US Silverberg, he probably likes his own work better than anybody else's.
2: What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Plotting.
3: <laughs> I just like anything else, you have to. My the genre I get up is usually. What I call, I don't call it science fiction, I just call it uh, social, uh, uh, of uh, human beings in under exotic circumstances and watch how these, the culture, uh, develops, uh, away from the Call them Gaian's G A E A N S Gaian. That's I I, uh, I I wrote a lot about the Gaian Reach Earth Goddess in Roman as well Gaia G A E A. So I call my environment. I just call it the Gaian Reach, and uh, I. I usually, the stuff I write is about human beings uh, uh, inhabiting uh, new new worlds and developing uh, cultural uh, cultural development. Uh, that's what interests me is uh, new culture. Does it get any easier? I go through the same work that everybody else does, plotting, which is very important. And of course, getting good characters is very important. But I, I'm very, I'm pleased with, uh, oh, uh, my, my last few of them were the ones I liked the best. The, uh, I like, uh, Oh uh, ports of call and Luralu the last two books I've written. Then I just run out of gas, didn't have any interest in writing any more science fiction, but I did knock out the autobiography and, and I think that's amusing. I think uh I think you find it amusing if you ever run
2: into it. Describe your daily work, and dear. Oh,
3: what do I do during the day? I just, well, first of all, I sit and read uh, murder mysteries, and then I'm kind of a musician in a way. I, I like jazz music. I don't know about you, but uh, I play uh, cornet. I play. Uh, Uh, banjo uh, ukulele harmonica and I'm what I'm doing now is I have a friend that comes over records me and I I I'm playing I'm creating what I call a shirt tail jazz band which I'm playing all the all the instruments but the uh, putting one on the other on you know my friend records them and and puts one track over the other one so I finally get a sounds like a a whole whole orchestra and these things are turned out pretty good I love jazz music I think it's the greatest music uh, I'd like some classical music but jazz is so much. More life to it, and it's so much euphoric. Uh, drives just knocks me out. You got some uh, good or, good orchestras in England. Ralph Barber, uh, one, let me think Of course, I used to love Ray Noble, and I like uh, Ravel, Scriabin uh vivaldi Bach, but I must say that Beethoven and Mozart bore me i i, I, I listen to them but i i if I'd never heard any more in my whole life of those people, I think they're just i i i know what direction they're all going in i I just find them tiresome as the ones I mentioned to the Debussy and Ravel. They're got some uh very romantic music. I think of And also, I don't know if you've ever heard any Hawaiian music. You know, uh you may or may not be aware of what Hawaiian music is. It's Music, which is loosely based on jazz but it and then it but it's got the uh the Hawaiian culture or something it takes it over and there's utterly beautiful music then I like uh, the gypsy music out of uh Hungary. I think that's that's again. This is it, it, it's a different kind of music. But uh, let me think of there any other type, oh, I I like uh, Spanish guitar. Uh, not not flamenco necessarily, but there's some wonderful Spanish composers that have a lot of guitar in them which I I like very much anyway that's what I like classical music oh anyway there's a, a Scottish band Jimmy Bland uh, he's when we're o- over there he's extremely popular he plays Scottish music. But uh, I have, it's very courtly music. It, it, uh, sometimes there'd be bagpipes involved, but uh, it's accordion, violin, and uh, piano. Uh, but uh, Jimmy Bland, uh, I think, that's that his name, Jimmy? It's it's delightful music, and again, that's uh, it's Scottish. It, it has a, a Scottish feel to it. Anyway,
2: what's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching?
3: Oh, nothing very much. I can't think of anything offhand. I know, I did some awful strange things when I was growing up. I, uh, uh, you, you've heard of the Golden Gate Bridge, I think, probably. But when they were building it, they had these tall towers. And I, I must have been a teenager then. And, uh, I just dared myself to, I, I had this strange feeling that I, I, want to develop my, my how shall I see well, develop myself. So anyway, they have these towers up from which the cables, these are very high towers, and then the cable comes over those, loops down. So I remember one time when they're building, the bridge, I dared myself, to Jack, climb up that tower. So I, I waited till night and went down to the foot of where the cable started. By this time, they, the the cable was so maybe uh, two feet in diameter with uh, and had handrails where the workers would walk out to go to work on that bridge, and I, I remember I got aboard this cable and walked up to the top of the first bri- first first uh, what do you call it, first I can't of the word first uh, not pole, but uh, I had a beautiful view over the San Francisco Bay in San Francisco and uh and it was dark and midnight, and I just walked up there, very excited. And then I was going to walk over down the loop over to the second tower. But then I heard some workmen coming my way, so I had to turn around and run back because I didn't want to be caught up there. I, uh, I, I like being a merchant seaman. I uh, I got into that at the end of the war, and I stayed aboard sh- ships after after the war for for a period. But uh, I, as I mentioned, I think I, I cruised all over the South Pacific and New Guinea. Australia. Norm and I, one time, this was after the war, we spent, uh, went, uh, lived in Tahiti. We went down to Tahiti, rented a house down there. It was a beautiful place. Tahiti. This is just what what we d- did, we'd, Norm and I traveled a great deal, and we'd uh, rent a house, apartment or something, and, well, I write, and we'd pay our way by, by, by write, and, and the income we got from the writing allowed us to travel, and uh, we, uh, we did, we went to Kashmir. Uh, rented a houseboat up Kashmir. Stayed there while I was writing something. and we Went down to Ceylon. They call it Sri Lanka now. And we rented a house in Ceylon down there. And originally, there's a place uh, in, in the coast of Italy. Positano, you may or may not be aware of it, but uh, that would, made a great impression on us. This Positano is down the coast from Sorrento, between Sorrento and Amalfi. The, the anyway, then with Frank Herbert, Frank Herbert and me, who went down into Mexico, set up a writer's household on Shake Lake Shapala for a while. In other words, I've done a lot of travelling in my life. Love it.
2: Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres?
3: Oh, yeah, it certainly is. So it's, uh, it's hard to distinguish science fiction from fantasy. But I, 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 I you, you can't describe the lyrics, but you know it when you read it, you know. Uh, one of my favorite stuff that I've written is, I call it the Leoness series. Uh, there's three three books in the Leoness set. I don't know if you ever come in contact with those. Leoness. The Green Pearl and uh, I forget the name of the. Anyway, that that's fantasy, but it's uh, one one of the uh, things I'm proud of. There's other things that I like, but I won't go into it too much. Anyway, uh, no, I but I uh, I don't. Find reading anybody else's stories at all interesting? That uh, I'm too damn fussy myself. I, uh, I I actually I I must say that I consider myself a good writer. I uh, have theories as to the, the not the science the craft of writing, which. I won't go into the details here, but but there so many writers ignore these this the oh, what's the uh, to the craftsmanship of writing science fiction that uh, they they just bore me and uh, I just. As I mentioned there's uh, Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. I found interesting and feel Moore.
2: What do you consider the chief value of science fiction?
3: Well, it, what it does. It 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 opens your mind to the, possi- the possibilities of the human human possibilities. Uh, of course, a lot of it is so much nonsense foolishness, but on the other hand uh, as on earth as we know it now there are so many different uh cultures chinese in indian uh and then, of course, uh, let me think. Where else on the on the, uh, on the Pacific Islands? There's these are all different ways of life, and of course the states and uh, England and uh, and France. I love France. I don't know, do you travel in France yourself? I love the south of France. When we travel in France, we travel by the Michelin guide. If you ever use the Michelin, it—I uh, think it, there's one f- for England as well. In fact, I know there is. It rates all the restaurants and the uh, hotels, and it's—it's it's just so much fun using the Michelin guide to travel by. If you know what I'd like to do. Uh, I never have done this, but I'm mad that I haven't done. What I'd like to do is have the have a car and get uh, a drop off at Southampton, and then drive up north through England, going to all the old old inns and old taverns that I uh, just going up. I don't. Scotland and Ireland, the taverns aren't picturesque or interesting, but the English, old English taverns, they're several so beautiful. In fact, in my house here, I've got a one room is set up with a bar in it, and it, I set it up because it. Uh, it's like an English tavern. We've got a fireplace, one end, and a bar, and horse brasses all over the bar. And, uh, have you, by any chance, have you ever read any of Marcia Grimes, uh, writer? Uh, her, all her books, most of them, are, the titles of them are, she, names the books after some English tavern. Very good books, very entertaining anyway.
2: Has science fiction ever disappointed you? You know, when I
3: when I try to write something and send it in, and, and I couldn't sell it to, or only get a half a cent of word on it or something but it uh, when I when I was pleased with something I written that that more than compensates for the times that I there's a lot of my early stuff that I don't like very much early short stories that I think are I I, I'm not proud of at all but the uh, longer I worked at it I The better I consider my books to be, it's a natural natural development, of course. But uh, I learned the craft of writing, so to speak. So at the end of my career, so to speak, I was pleased with the stuff that I'd written.
2: Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? I don't know.
3: I doubt it. I as uh, I have the slightest idea. I don't. I haven't read any science fiction for thirty, forty years. I don't know what people are writing nowadays. For all I know, maybe there's a lot of good stuff going on. I, I don't know. Don't have a. Don't know. I, I don't have a clue. I just read the. I mentioned the. Murder
2: mysteries. Jack Vance, thank you so much.
3: Well, let me think. Oh, I want to ask you: uh, Have you ever been over here in the states?
2: We well, we came to the the Vermont. You know, we kind of we stayed around Maine and Vermont, and we stayed. Well,
3: every... don't you? If you come out, you ever been in California?
2: Uh, no, we haven't. No.
3: Well, what? Uh, I'd uh, Come to California and uh, and stay with us. Oh, that would be. We could. Uh, uh, you could bring your whole family over and and uh, <laughs> and visit. I'd be delighted to have you over here.
2: Oh, Jack, that was a, that's a lovely offer. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's just like you say. It's it's in this day and age, you know, to to get my family up and over there, eight. It's, it's a, it costs a small fortune, and we've got the real world in, you know, we're getting the, we're getting a new bathroom fitted in the house, so that's taken up all the money this year, but what, that's a lovely kind offer, thank you so much.
3: Well, no, take me seriously, I'd love to have you over here. Oh, Jack,
2: that's a, um, that's a lovely offer.
3: Linda, uh, uh, California is such a beautiful state, there's so much... Wonderful things here in California, beautiful, beautiful scenery. I don't, I, uh, this, I I live right across the bay from San Francisco in Oakland, which is up in the hills across the bay from San Francisco, but, uh, Oh, there's so much in so much in California. That I I won't take take the trouble. I won't bore you with it. Oh, i, know. Enough, I Well, anyway, I,
2: I, I'm interested to find out about you. Hu- so you built your house. You and your son just built your house by yourselves. I beg your pardon. You know, well, you I built my house. Yes.
3: yes. Yes, I did, and it's it's a large place uh When we first bought this property here, we got it very cheap, and there was a little shack on it and we moved into this little little i can't call it a cottage it was it was just uh, nothing very much, but we got to work and moved in and then started building our new house around it. And if we built, we'd throw the old house out the window. And uh, finally, we got, so there's nothing the old shack in here now at all. It's all It's uh, very pleased with their house. It's It's three stories on it. Three floors, I guess you call it, and it's very spacious, very pleasant. I think. Where do, uh, do you have a? Do you have a? Uh, how do you support yourself? What kind of? business well, you
2: Well, I work for the local the water industry the water company over here so I'll take I'll, I'll take say reservoir water and in my plant where I work it turns it into drinking water
3: yeah
2: yeah and where I live I live on just right on the edge right on the, on the northeast coast a little fishing village right on the northeast coast of England which, and it's lovely as well do you know what I mean it, sometimes we we'll get some horrible weather <laughs> through the wind that's the you know. Yorkshire no a little bit further up the northeast that's, of england northeast that's that's yorkshire J- a b- bit further not not exactly scotland just on the kind of really on the borders of scotland just before scotland up
3: to hadrian's wall
2: yes yes not far from there i'll actually live on the coast where wall's end that's where hadrian's wall starts. it's not far from wall's end
3: i uh one time i was invited to a convention in Sweden and I drove up let me think I rented a a car down in Southampton and went over a a ship and rented a car and drove up I think up to the to a town up near Hadrian's Wall and from there I, I turned in I forget now whether, maybe I took public transportation. It makes no difference. It must have been. Uh, it must have come up on the train or the bus. But to a port there, I forget the name of it, but there, a ferry connects this port with Norway. Uh, undoubtedly,
2: you know it if I mentioned it. It's not, it's not the River Tyne, Newcastle, is it? Is that... Yeah. yeah, That's my city.
3: <laughs> a ferry, a ferry uh, runs to Norway.
2: Yes, it does. Yes, it comes through. Well, the River Tyne is probably where you get the ferry from. Is probably four mile away from, from my from my house. So
3: long, I've forgotten. But it was awful. We stayed at I, or I was alone. But this, Norma didn't come with me on this trip. But I was there by myself. I came up East Anglia, up the up the east coast of England, and uh, up into Newcastle, and then took the ferry over to Norway, and spent the whole maybe a month in Norway, and went over to Stockholm, went to the convention in Stockholm, and down to get home went down through Denmark, or just, actually I just went Copenhagen and then from Copenhagen home.
2: What was, Jack, what was it like, you know when you said you you went with Frank Herbert and he lived in a house in Mexico and Frank, what was all that about?
3: Well, we, yeah it was a uh, a lake, there's a lake, Chapala, and uh, we rented a house down there, and uh, we thought we could <coughs> we could make sell enough stuff to keep us going. But for some reason, uh, this was before Frank wrote Dune. Uh, but we thought we could. Make, uh, but first, uh, at that time, just before this time, I was writing a television uh, program called Captain Video and I thought I could s- s- sell these Captain Video scripts in Mexico but just about this time uh, they, uh, they, they uh, I forget the circumstances now but anyway I didn't they, they weren't Taking the Captain Video scripts anymore, and I wrote some other stuff, but uh, it was just a a drought. Couldn't make any money, and we had to slink home. Both of us, Frank, uh, Frank went up to Seattle, and uh, I went to uh, Oakland. Frank went back, ultimately, he went back to Mexico. He came down in a hearse. You know what a hearse is?
2: Yes. He
3: <laughs> he, he, he drove down past our house in a hearse, went down to Mexico, and converted the hearse to a station wagon. And uh, then he ultimately came back. Then uh, Cole Anderson... Frank and I, we started building a houseboat. See, up and where we live, there there is a lot of rivers and tributaries. And uh, so, anyway, we 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 started work on this houseboat. Just about got it through, and then. Suddenly, a big storm came up, and well i won 't go through all the details here, but anyway, the thing sank, and uh it was just about done but uh paul anderson he was a marvelous marvelous man he's one of my great friends, and man I admired tremendously and uh, His writing was, I think, kind of spotty. But (laughs) Frank, Frank, he uh, threw in the towel. He just gave up. He said, "I'm out of this. I don't want to." But Paul and I, we raised this houseboat and uh, took it up the river, and then we had that for just marvelous. It was so beautiful. To think about the old houseboat with such wonderful memories, but finally I gave it away to we, Norma and I. Uh, sold uh, sold some sold a set of stories for four thousand dollars. Enough to take us over to Europe. I gave away my share in the houseboat to uh, Hungarian who was wanted to uh, uh, trying to get set up professional soccer uh, league here in California. Ever took on, but he sank the houseboat again. That's the last I saw of it.
2: Right, and it 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 sank and that was it, was it? Yeah. Hold on just
3: a minute, John. Oh. I'm just talking to a friend.
2: Well, no, listen, Jack, I've kept you so long and it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your life with myself and me, li- listeners. It's been lovely
3: I can't complain. Uh, I'm getting a little long in the tooth now, but
2: uh, how old are you now, then, Jack? I am ninety-three. Wow! Go on. <laughs> <laughs> and are you still f- fitting well? Is everything okay in health-wise? Uh, I uh, I lost
3: my eyesight. I don't know if you know that or not.
2: Yes, I'd, I'd heard that. Yeah,
3: but uh, I. Don't- more i am more or less healthy I'm certainly I don't think I'm senile yet <laughs> uh, and I have all my teeth and yeah, I'm pretty good health I'm not obese i'm I'm pretty good physical shape and I I'm more or less healthy.
2: Well, that's lovely. Yes, it's that's lovely to hear with you, Jack. Yes. Well, hopefully, Touchwood, I'm fine. I'm I'm 44, so and you know I'm. I don't think well, I'm. I'm well,
3: 44. <laughs> I'm I'm more than twice your age. <laughs> yes. Just
2: think of that. I know it's um, it's strange how life just goes round and round. It's amazing. But, yeah. yeah. But you sound fitting. Well, that's that's the main thing. You know what I mean? Because. You just, oh,
3: no, i got all my wits about me still. I enjoy being alive. I can't live forever, of course. But
2: I can't complain. It's nice to know that Silverberg, Silverberg still Silverberg. pops up and sees you.
3: What's about Silverberg?
2: He still comes up and sees you.
3: I see him about once every month or two. He comes up to our house up here. In fact, it's about uh, time I was having Silverberg up again. I haven't seen him for a couple of months now.
2: Well, I asked I asked those questions to Robert Silverberg, and he was some he gives some lovely answers as well, you know. So it's been really nice because th- those questions I've asked to a number of writers, and it's nice to see the difference, you know, what what different writers come up with.
3: Oh yeah. Silverberg and I are we get along well enough. But but uh he's lived such a different life from 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 mine. He's done a lot of traveling too. And he's uh got a very nice wife. He have no kids, Silverberg. But uh I there's so many amusing episodes in his life that
2: I about time I was having him over and so have you not read any Robert Silverberg books have you never read a a story by Bob Silverberg yeah I uh, I I
3: I I don't remember ever I must have (laughs) but it's it's been so long ago thirty or 40 years I haven't essentially I must say that I oh I remember one story I read by him but it wasn't science fiction it was a historical book uh, uh, something about uh, the uh, Istanbul uh, or the Turks or something like that I forget what it was I've forgotten it, but anyway, uh, but I've, uh, I haven't read it, no, I haven't read much by. it, and uh, I haven't read Frank Herbert either, uh, Frank, uh, well, so you, you made didn't, a lot of money.
2: You haven't read Dune, have you not? No, i never read it. Well, there's something in common, because I never have as well.
3: <laughs> no, he uh, is son... Ryan is still turning out these
2: Dune books. Yes, so have
3: so But uh, the funny thing is, when Frank and I were down in Chapala, Mexico, and uh, Frank uh, was we sit, we're sitting out in our front porch and drinking beer there, and Frank said, "I got a wonderful idea for for a, a, a novel. It's about." uh a dry planet and the people there with they mind spice. And it's dry. And uh they write spice. And he's he was looking off over across the lake there, Lake Chipala. And uh and I I didn't think I thought Jesus, I don't think this is gonna He's going to waste his time on this. So, I remember telling them, say, I didn't want to see outright that, Frank, this is, this is a silly idea. <laughs> Foolishness. But I kind of hinted, I said, well, I don't know about that, Frank. I don't know about that. Uh, this, uh, and he was looking off across the distance. And, uh, then the funny thing is, when he, when he first published Dune, it, he he said, "I have Jack Vance to thank for inspiring me." <laughs> 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 he thought I didn't think, encouraged him to write Dune when I uh, I was trying to discourage him. <laughs> but he didn't pay any attention to me. He was looking off. <laughs> Dave Lee looking across. Frank was an awful strange fellow, I tell you. I I have so many anecdotes in regard to Frank Herbert that I uh, I can't say that I admired him personally very much. He, was, he had some good qualities to him, but uh, uh, he he was. Frank was such a oh well, for instance, Frank um, learned to play. Uh, Do you know who George Gershwin
2: is? Yes, I've heard. Well, I've Uh, heard. I don't know his music, but I've heard. I've heard the name.
3: Yeah, well, George Gershwin wrote uh, a thing called Rhapsody in Blue and it's a kind of classical music but it's it's pretty stuff but frank frank was not a musician but somehow he learned the first bar or two bars of this rhapsody in blue it, it that, he couldn't play it but he sedulously worked so he could play da, 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 da. And uh, that was the first, first couple bars of the Strap C and Blue. And that's all he could play. But he had, that, he had a little trick. of uh, I've seen him do this three or four times when he had friends coming over. He'd sit at the piano. And as they came up the front door, he'd hit his, his first three chords. And then by this time, the people would be coming in the house, and Frank would stop and turn, looking at them, you know, grinning, and say, You know, oh, yes. They'd Frank, continue, continue. And Frank would laugh at him and uh, chuckle and never said, That's all I can play. But he just acted, I'm too modest to continue playing. <laughs> uh, he, he was such a, such a, he had many good qualities, but I never admired personally very much. Him. I thought he was kind of a, well. Six, 65 a, when he North died 20, as well. He, he, He had many good qualities, but, for instance, when our houseboat went down, he didn't. He said, ah, I've had it, and walked away, and Paul and I had to raise the thing, which we did. Paul was such a wonderful guy. I admire him very much. He He was... well, I can't say enough about him. He had a lovely mother, too. She was a delightful old lady. But his wife, she was a hellhound. She's still alive. Karen, you ever met her?
2: No, no.
3: Oh, uh, she's, she, she's a strange lady. <laughs> Well,
2: let me think. Anything else you want to discuss? No, Jack. That it's been honestly, it's been lovely just talking to you. It's just sitting here listening to you has been just fantastic. It's been so nice. Thank you so much. Well, it's nice talking to you. It's uh, yes. Honestly, thank you. And I just say I hope you know your good health remains for many years to come.
3: Hope. (laughs) Naturally, I. (laughs) <laughs> don't want to uh, turn my toes up too soon. Um. I was just reading a book. Uh, uh, there's a, a man called John Edward. He's, he's a, uh, one of these spiritualists, spirit. And I just happened to hit on a book that he wrote. He talking about people come in and uh, he... Uh, Uh, communicates with, according to him, according to the book, communicates with the dead. Uh, Spirits, spirits talk to him. And this book is so so convincing. But, uh, this uh, friend of mine just come through, he says, well, he's a fake, a fraud. But, uh, I I don't know I uh I'm uh I I'm not a spiritualist. I don't necessarily endorse the idea of spirits but there's some many mediums and uh I, there's so many frauds involved here. But uh but uh, who knows, you know, it's, you have these poltergeists. Have you ever uh, run into a poltergeist?
2: No, and it, it's funny, I, I don't know which we are sit. with all, you know, looking at the spiritualists. You're
3: supposed to have them all over, it's, all over ain't Yes,
2: poltergeists. It's what they say, you know, <laughs>
3: Poltergeists come from the German word, noisy ghost.
2: I'm actually scared of the dark as well, so that doesn't help. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but... Uh, apparently they have poltergeists here in the States, but, uh, I've never run into anything of this sort. But, I've got an open mind. I'm not religious at all. I, uh, I, I, I'm not, well, I'm a atheist, essentially. But, uh, who know, well, who knows what's going on. Maybe, there's, maybe there is maybe an old man with white whiskers sitting out somewhere on a planet of his own watching down, looking at things that are going on here in the world, making decisions, being kind to people, breathing Jesus Christ. But... It's, I don't know. I can't believe it. As I mentioned, I'm an atheist. But religion has been a source of comfort for an awful lot of people. And on the other hand, it's been the source of so many horrible things that have happened in the name of religion, starting with the Crusades, the Thirty Years' War, the uh, Spanish
2: Inquisition. Well, Jack, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much.
3: Well, don't forget uh, get your fam- bring your family over and <laughs> and uh, visit us.
2: That would be that's a lovely gesture. Thank you so much. Yeah, it'd be a pleasure.
3: All right, Jack, uh, take good you care. Never-
2: I want to call again, do so. Oh, I would love to, yes. It would be, I, I mean, if that's okay, I would love to call again. You know what I mean? I'll certainly get some more questions and, you know, talk about the old days. and Because it's nice just talking about the old science fiction writers, you know, the older guys as well. Different questions. But I've certainly kept you too long this time. So <laughs> thank you so much. All right.
3: Not at all. Nice well, talking to
2: you. Yes, have a lovely day, and thank you so much. Same to you. Take, good, take good care. Bye-bye.
3: All
2: right, bye. There you go. Do you know it's it's actually hard to to you know have an outro to that that interview? I was just left. Do you know what I mean? Actually, when I I'll give you a little background to the the interview, you know, I was expecting to be quite honest. A couple of days before that, I did the Rear Bradbury interview, and I'll play that you know very soon. The Ray Bradbury interview lasted two minutes, if that. Do you know? I wasn't expecting Jack Vance to put in such a fantastic, you know, interview. I was expecting, you know, a couple of minutes, maybe five. And I would have been very happy with that. Do you know? And actually, you know, the family was waiting for us as well. You know, they're upset I says, Melanie, I'll be a couple of minutes and I'll you know, we'll come up and I'll we'll read the read a story I think we we're gonna do. You know, like I say, it was over an hour. And I've edited little bits out, you know, so it was well over an hour. And I was just left. You know, it just knocked me sideways, that interview. I was just humbled by this great man. Do you know, what a sweet, gentle man. And he's inviting us over. You know what I mean? It doesn't happen, no. That doesn't happen in the real world. Do you know, it's just lovely, lovely man. Please spread the word about this interview. I just want everyone to hear it, Do you know. I want everyone to kind of know about, I know everyone knows about Jack Vance, but just, I bet there's not many kind of audio interviews out there with him. This one is special. Please pass the word. Next up is Kim Stanley Robinson with a story called Mercurial. And again, this is, you know, one of the big hitters in the science fiction world. Born in 1952, American science fiction writer. If you actually trawl back through the archives of Starship Sovers Oral's Lights, The English Assassin does a lovely in-depth review of some of Kim Stanley Robinson's works. But I'll just give you a little heads up. We had the Mars Trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, The Orange County, The Wild Shore, The Gold Coast and Pacific Edge. I actually got that in hardback, first edition. Novels, The Year of Rice and Salt is one of them, and this came out in 2009, Galileo's Dream. He started writing short fiction in somewhere around 1976 and his last one, according to the Internet Science Fiction Database, is Prometheus Unbound at last, 2007. Kim Stanley Robinson has won 11 of the major science fiction awards. He has won the Hugo Award for Best Novel for Green Mars in 1994, then Blue Mars in 1997. The Nebula Award for Best Novel with Red Mars, nineteen ninety three. The World Fantasy Award with Black Air came out nineteen eighty three. Then the John W. Campbell Award for Best Science Fiction with Pacific Edge, nineteen ninety one. He's won the Locus Award for a number of books: The Wild Shore, nineteen eighty five; A Sharp, Sharp Shock, nineteen ninety. <laughs> <laughs> The S is right. Green Mars, 1994. Blue Mars, 1997. And The Martians, 2000. And finally, with The Years of Rice and Salt, 2003. Like I say, do troll back through the archives and listen to English Assassin on Kim Stanley Robinson. It is a great little in-depth review of the man's work. The story is narrated by Peter Seaton clark who runs Ofstema, which provides professional experience voiceover artists for the broadcasting industry in Germany and all over Europe. Peter has been such a great help to Starship Sofa. He was part of the James Morrow story with his wife, Nicola Seaton clark and they did that fantastic narration. And he's done a number of narrations and more coming up in the future as well. So I'll put a link on to off please pop over there and just have a look at Peter's work over there as well. Fantastic. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present.
0: Mercurial by Kim Stanley Robinson. She rules all of ours, said Dorothy. And
1: so she rules your city and you, because you are in the winky country, which is part of the land of Oz.
0: It may be, returned the high Lorum. for we do not study geography and have never inquired whether we live in the land of Oz or not. Any ruler who rules us from a distance and unknown to us is welcome to the job. L. Frank Baum, The Lost Princess of Oz I am not, despite the appearances, fond of crime detection. In the past, it is true, I occasionally accompanied my friend Freya Grindavik as she solved her cases, and admittedly, this Watsoning gave me some good material for the little tales I have written for the not very discriminating markets on Mars and Titan. But after the case of the golden sphere of the lion of Mercury, in which I ended up hung by the feet from the clear dome of Terminator, two hundred metres above the rooftops of the city, my native lack of enthusiasm rose to the fore. And following the unfortunate adventure of the Vulcan Accelerator, when Freya's arch-foe Jan Johansson tied us to a pile of hay under a large magnifying glass in a survival tent, there to await Mercury's fierce dawn, I put my foot down. No. More. Detecting. That, so to speak, was the last straw. So when I agreed to accompany Freya to the solde party of Heidi van seegeren it was against my better judgment. But Freya assured me there would be no business involved, and despite the obvious excesses, I enjoy a solde party as much as the next aesthete. So when she came by my villa, I was ready. "'Make haste,' she said. "'We're late.' and I must be before Heidi's Monet when the great gates are opened. I adore that painting. "'Your infatuation is no secret,' I said, panting as I trailed her through the crowded streets of the city. "'Freya, as those of you who have read my earlier tales know, is two and a half metres tall and broad-shouldered. She barged through the shoals of Solde celebrants rather like a whale, and I, pilot-fish-like, dodged in her wake.'
5: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com Let's get this dinner party started
0: With carpet beaters were busy pounding rugs saturated with yellow dust As I coughed and brushed off my fine burgundy suit I said My feeling is that you have taken me to view that antique canvas once or twice too often She looked at me sternly "'As you will see, on Sol Day it transcends even its usual beauty. "'You look like a bee drowning in pollen, Nathaniel.' "'Whose fault is that?' I demanded, brushing my suit fastidiously. "'We came to the gate in the walls surrounding Van Siegeren's town villa, "'and Freya banged on it loudly. "'The gate was opened by a scowling man.' He was nearly a metre shorter than Freya, and had a balding head that bulged rather like the dome of the city. In a mincing voice he said, Invitations? What's this? said Freya. We have permanent invitations from Heidi. I'm sorry, the man said coolly. Miss Van Siegren has decided her solday parties have gotten overcrowded and this time she sent out invitations and instructed me to let in only those who have them. Then there has been a mistake, Freya declared. Get Heidi on the intercom, and she will instruct you to let me in. I am Freya Grindavik, and this is Nathaniel Sebastian. I'm sorry, the man said, quite unapologetically. Every person turned away says the same thing, and Miss Van Segren prefers not to be disturbed so frequently. She'll be more disturbed to hear we've been held up. Freya shifted towards the man. Who are you, anyway? I am Sandor Musgrave, Miss Van Siegren's private secretary. How come I've never met you? Miss Van Siegren hired me two months ago, Musgrave said and stepped back so he could look Freya in the eye without straining his neck. That is immaterial, however. I've been Heidi's friend for over forty years, Freya said slowly, once again shifting forward to lean over the man. And I would wager she values her friends more than her secretaries. Musgrave stepped back indignantly. I'm sorry, he snapped. "'I have my orders. Good day!' But alas for him, Freya was now standing well in the gateway, and she seemed uninclined to move. She merely cocked her head at him. Musgrave comprehended his problem, and his mouth twitched uncertainly. The impasse was broken when Van Siegeren's maid, Lucinda, arrived from the street. "'Oh, hello, Freya. Nathaniel. What are you doing out here?' This new Malvolio of yours is barring our entrance, Freya said. Oh, Musgrave, said Lucinda, let these two in or the boss will be mad. Musgrave retreated with a deep scowl. I've studied the ancients, Miss Grindvig, he said sullenly. You need not insult me. Malvolio was a tragic character, Freya assured him. Read Charles Lamb's essay concerning the matter. "'I certainly will,' Musgrave said stiffly, "'and hurried to the villa, giving us a last, poisonous look. "'Of course, Lamp's father,' Freya said absently, staring after the man, "'was a house-servant. "'Lucinda, who is that?' "'Lucinda rolled her eyes. "'The boss hired him to restore some of her paintings and get the records in order. "'I wish she hadn't.' "'The bell in the gate sounded. "'I've got it, Musgrave!' Lucinda shouted at the villa. She opened the gate, revealing the artist, Harvey Washburn. "'So you do,' said Harvey, blinking. He was high again, a bottle of the White Brother hung from his hand. "'Freya! Nathaniel! Happy Soul Day, dear! Have a drink!' We refused the offer, and then followed Harvey around the side of the villa, exchanging a glance. I felt sorry for Harvey. Most of Mercury's great collectors came to Harvey's showings— but they dissected his every brushstroke for influences and told him what he should be painting, and then amongst themselves they called his work amateurish and unoriginal and never bought a single canvas. I was never surprised to see him drinking. We rounded the side of the big villa and stepped onto the white stone patio, which was made of a giant slab of England's Dover cliffs, cut out and transported to Mercury Entire. Malvolio Musgrave had spoken the truth about Heidi reducing the size of her solde party. Where often the patio had been jammed, there were now less than a dozen people. I spotted George Butler, Heidi's friend and rival art collector, and Arnold Oman, the art dealer who obtained for many of Mercury's collectors their ancient masterpieces from earth. As I greeted them, Freya led us all across the patio to the back wall of the villa, which was also fronted with white slabs of the Dover Cliffs. "'There, all alone, hung Claude Monet's Rouen Cathedral, sun effect. "'Look at it, Nathaniel,' Freya commanded me. "'Isn't it beautiful?' "'I looked at it. "'Now, you must understand that as owner of the Gallery Orientale, "'and by deepest personal aesthetic conviction, "'I am a connoisseur of Chinese art.' a style in which a dozen artfully spontaneous brush-strokes can serve to delineate a mountain or two, several trees, a small village in its inhabitants, and perhaps some birds. Given my predilection, you will not be surprised to learn that merely to look at the antique rectangle of colour that Freya so admired was to risk damaging my eyes. Thick, scumbled layers of grainy paint scarcely revealed the cathedral of the title, which wavered under a blast of light so intense that I doubted Mercury's midday could compete with it. Small blobs of every colour served to represent both the indistinct stone and a pebbly sky. Both were composed of combinations principally of white, yellow and purple, though, as I say, every other colour made an appearance. Stunning, I said, with a severe squint. He was sure this Monet wasn't a bit nearsighted. Freya glared at me, ignoring Butler's chuckles. I suppose your comment might have been funny the first time you made it, to children, anyway. But I heard it was actually true, I said, shielding my eyes with one hand. Monet was nearsighted, and so like Goya his vision affected his painting. I should hope so, Harvey said solemnly. So all he could see were those blobs of colour. Isn't that sad? Freya shook her head. You won't get a rise out of me today, Nathaniel. You'll have to think up your dinner conversation by yourself. Momentarily stopped by this repast, I retired with Arnold Omen to Heidi's patio bar. After dialling drinks from the bartender, we sat on the blocks of Dover cliffs that made up the patio's low outer wall. We toasted solde and contemplated the clouds of yellow talc that swirled over the orange tile rooftops below us. For those of you that have never visited it, Terminator is an oval city. The forward half of the city is flat and projects out under the clear dome. The rear half of the oval is terraced and rises to the tall dawn wall, which supports the upper rim of the dome and shields the city from the perpetually rising sun. The great gates of Terminator are near the top of the dawn wall, and when they are opened, shafts of Sol's overwhelming light spear through the city's air, illuminating everything in a yellow brilliance. Heidi van Siegren's villa was about halfway up the terraced slope. We looked upon grey stone walls, orange tile roofs, and the dusty vines and lemon trees of the terraced gardens that dotted the city. Outside the dome the twelve big tracks over which the city slid extended off to the horizon, circling the planet like a slender silver wedding band. It was a fine view and I lifted my glass to the idea that Claude Monet wasn't there to paint it. For sometimes, if you ask me, reality is enough. Omen downed his drink in one swallow. Rumour had it that he was borrowing heavily to finance one of his big Terran purchases. It was whispered he was planning to buy the closed portion of the Louvre, or the Renaissance Room of the Vatican Museum, or Amsterdam's Van Gogh collection but rumours like that circulated round Arnold continuously. He was that kind of dealer. It was unlikely any of them were true. Still, his silence seemed to reveal a certain tension. Look at the way Freya is soaking in that painting you got for Heidi, I said, to lift his spirits. Freya's face was within centimetres of the canvas, where she could examine it blob by blob. The people behind her could see nothing but her white blonde hair, Oman smiled at the sight. He had brought the Monet back from his most recent Terran expedition, and apparently it had been a great struggle to obtain it. Both the English family that owned it and the British government had had to be paid enormous sums to secure its release, and only the fact that Mercury was universally considered humanity's greatest art museum had cleared the matter with the courts. It had been one of Arnold's finest hours. Now he said... Maybe we should pull her away a bit so that others can see. If both of us tug on her, it may work, I said. We stood and went to her side. Harvey Washburn, looking flushed and frazzled, joined us, and we convinced Freya to share the glory. Omen and Butler conferred over something, and entered the villa through the big French doors that led into the concert room. Inside, Heidi's orchestra rolled up and down the scales of Mazorgsky's hut of the Baba Yaga. That meant it was close to the time when the great gates would open. Heidi always gets inside information about this. Sure enough, as Mazorgsky's composition burst from the hut of Baba Yaga into the great gates of Kiev, two splinters of white light split the air under the dome. Shouts and fanfares rose everywhere, nearly drowning the amplified sound of our orchestra. Slowly the great gates opened, and as they did the shafts of light grew to thick buttery gold bars of air. By their rich, nearly blinding glare, Heidi van Siegeren made her first entrance from her villa, timing her steps to the exaggerated mazel retard that her conductor Hugh employed every day, when pictures at an exhibition was performed. This retard shifted the music from the merely grandiose to the utterly bombastical, and it took Heidi over a minute to cross her own narrow patio, but I suppose it was not entirely silly, given the ritual nature of the moment, and the flood of light that was making the air appear a thick, quite tangible gel. What with the light and the uproar created by the Keening Greys, and the many orchestras in the neighbourhood each playing their own overture or fanfare, the Coriolan came from one side of us, the 1812 from the other. It was a complex, and I might even say noisy, aesthetic moment, and the last thing I needed was to take another look at the Monet monstrosity, but Freya would not have it otherwise. "'You've never seen it when the great gates are opened,' she said. "'That was the whole point in bringing you here today.' "'I see. Actually, I barely saw anything.' As Freya had guided me by the arm to the painting, I had accidentally looked directly at the incandescent yellow bars of sunlight, and brilliant blue after-images bounced in my sight. I heard rather than saw Harvey Washburn join us. Many blinks later I was able to join the others in devoting my attention to the big canvas. Well, the Monet positively glowed in the dense, lambent air. It gave off light like a lamp, vibrating with a palpable energy of its own. At the sight of it, even I was impressed. "'Yes,' I admitted to Freya and Harvey. "'I can see how precisely he placed all those little chunks of colour, "'and I can see how sharp and solid the cathedral is under all that goo. "'But it's like Sol Day, you know. "'It's a heightened effect. "'The result is garish, really. "'It's, it's, it's too much.' this is a painting of midday,' Harvey said. And as you can see, midday can get pretty garish. But this is Terminator. The greys have put a lot of talc into the air to make it look that way. So what? Freya demanded impatiently. Stop thinking so much, Nathaniel. Just look at it. See it. Isn't it beautiful? Haven't you felt things look that way sometimes, seeing stone in sunlight? Well, and since I'm a strictly honest person... If I had said anything at all, I would have had to admit that it did have a power about it. It drew the eye. It poured light onto us as surely as the beams of sunlight extending from the gates in the Dawn wall to the curved side of the clear dome. Well, Freya demanded. Well, yes, I said. Yes, I see that cathedral front. I feel it. But there must have been quite a heat wave in old Rouen. It's as if Monet had seen Terminator on Solde. The painting fits so well with this light. No, Freya said, but her left eye was squinted, a sign she is thinking. Harvey said, we make the conditions of light in Terminator, so it's an act of the imagination like this painting. You shouldn't be surprised if there are similarities. We value this light because the old masters created it on their canvases. I shook my head and indicated the brassy bedlam around us. No, I believe we made this one up ourselves. Freya and Harvey laughed with the giddiness that Sol Day inspires. Suddenly, a loud screech came from inside the villa. Freya hurried across the patio into the music room, and I followed her. Both of us, however, had forgotten the arrangements that Heidi made on Sol Day's to cast the brilliant light throughout her home, and as we ran past the silenced orchestra into a hallway we were blasted by light from a big mirror carefully placed in the villa's central atrium. Screams still echoed from somewhere inside, but we could only stumble blindly through bright, pulsing afterimages retinal moneys, if you will, while unidentified persons bowled into us and mirrors crashed to the floor. And the atrium was raised, so that occasional steps up in the hallway tripped us. Murder! "'Someone cried. "'Murder! "'There he goes!' "'And with that the whole group of us "'were off down the halls like hounds, "'blind hounds baying after unknown prey. "'A figure leaped from behind a mirror glaring white, "'and Freya and I tackled it just inside the atrium. "'When my vision swam back, "'I saw it was George Butler. "'What's going on?' he asked, "'very politely for a man "'who had just been jumped on by Freya grindevik "'Don't ask us!' Freya said irritably. Murder! shrieked Lucinda from the hallway that led from the atrium directly back to the patio. We jumped up and crowded into the hallway. Just beyond a mirror, shattered into many pieces, lay a man's body. Apparently he had been crawling towards the patio when he collapsed, and one arm and finger extended ahead of him, pointing to the patio still. Freya approached, gingerly turned the body's head, It's that Musgrave fellow, she said, blinking to clear her sight. He's dead, all right. Struck on the head with the mirror there, no doubt. Heidi Van Siegeren joined us. What's going on? That was my question, George Butler said. Freya explained the situation to her. Call the police, Heidi said to Lucinda, and I suppose no one should leave. I sighed. And so crime detection ensnared me once again. I helped Freya by circulating on the patio, calming the shocked and nervous guests. Um, excuse me, very sorry to inform you, yes, sorry, hard to believe, yes, somebody had it in for the Secretary Musgrave, it appears, all the while watching to see if anyone would jump or turn pale or start to run when I told them. Then, of course— I had to lead gently to the idea that everyone had gone from guest to suspect, soon to be questioned by Freya and the police. Oh, no, of course you're not suspected of anything. Furthest thing from our minds. It's just that Freya wants to know if there's anything you saw that would help. And so on. Then I had to do the difficult scheduling of Freya's interviews. At the same time, I was supposed to keep an eye out for anything suspicious. Oh, the Watson does the dirty work all right. No wonder we always look dense when the detective unveils the solutions. We never have the time even to get the facts straight, much less meditate on their meaning. All I got that day were fragments. Lucinda whispered to me that Musgrave had worked for George Butler before Heidi hired him. Harvey Washburn told me that Musgrave had once been an artist and that he had only recently moved to Mercury from Earth. This was his first soul day. That didn't give him much time to be hired by Butler, fired, and then hired by Van Siegren. But was that of significance? Late in the day I spoke with one of the police officers handling the case. She was relieved to have the help of Freya Grindavik. Terminator's police force is small and often relies on the help of the city's famous detective for more difficult cases. The officer gave me a general outline of what they had learned. Lucinda had heard a shout for help, had stepped into the atrium and seen a bloodied figure crawling down the hallway towards the patio. She had screamed and run for help, but only in the hallway was clear vision possible, and she had quickly gotten lost. After that chaos, everyone at the party had a different tale of confusion. After that conversation, I had nothing more to do, so I got all the sequestered guests' coffee and helped pick up some of the broken hall mirrors and pass some time prowling Heidi's villa. "'getting down on my hands and knees with the police robots to inspect a stain or two. "'When Freya was finished with her interrogations, "'she promised Heidi and the police that she would see the case to its end, "'at least provisionally. "'I only do this for entertainment,' she told them irritably. "'I'll stay with it as long as it entertains me, "'and I shall entertain myself with it.' "'That's all right,' said the police, who had heard this before. "'Just so long as you'll take the case.' Freya nodded and we left. The Sol Day celebration was long since over. The great gates were closed and once again through the dome shone the black sky. I said to Freya, Did you hear about Musgrave working for Butler, and how he came from Earth just recently? For you see, once on the scent I am committed to seeing a case solved. Please, Nathaniel, Freya said. I heard all that and more. Musgrave stole the concept of Harvey Washburn's first series of paintings. He blackmailed both Butler and our host, Heidi, to obtain his jobs from them, or so I deduce from their protestations and certain facts concerning their recent questionable merger that I am privy to. And he tried to assault Lucinda, who is engaged to the cook de Laurence. She let out a long sigh. Motives are everywhere. It seems this Musgrave was a thoroughly despicable sort. I said. Yes. An habitual blackmailer. Nothing suggests itself to you? No, I don't know why I agreed to solve these things. Here I am committed to this head bashing and my best clue is something that you suggested. I wasn't aware that I'd suggested anything. There is a fresh perspective to ignorance that can be very helpful. So it Is important that Musgrave just arrived from Earth? She laughed. Let's stop at the Plaza Dubrovnik and get something to eat. I'm starving. Almost three weeks passed without a word from Freya, and I began to suspect that she was ignoring the case. Freya has no real sense of right and wrong, you see. She regards her cases as games to be tossed aside if they prove too taxing. More than once she has cheerfully admitted defeat— and blithely forgotten any promises she may have made. She is not a moral person. So I dropped by her home near Plaza Dubrovnik one evening to rouse her from her irresponsible indifference. When she answered the door, there were paint smudges on her face and hands. Freya, I scolded her, how could you take up an entirely new hobby when there is a case to be solved? Generously, I allow you entrance after such a false accusation she said, but you will have to eat your words. She led me downstairs to her basement laboratory, which extended the entire length and breadth of her villa. There on a big white-topped table lay Heidi van Siegerin's Monet, looking like the three-dimensional geological map of some minerally blessed country. "'What's this?' I exclaimed. "'Why is this here?' "'I believe it is a fake,' she said shortly, returning to a computer console.' Wait a moment, I cried. On the table around the painting were rolls of recording chart paper, lab notebooks, and what looked like black-and-white photos of the painting. What do you mean? After tapping at the console, she turned to me. I mean, I believe it's a fake. But I thought art forgery was extinct. It is too easy to discover a fake. Ha! She waved a finger at me angrily. You pick a bad time to say so. It is a common opinion, of course, but not necessarily true. I regarded the canvas more closely. What makes you think this is a fake? I thought it was judged a masterpiece for its period. Something you said first caused me to question it, she said. You mentioned that the painting seemed to have been created by an artist familiar with the light of Terminator. This seemed true to me and it caused me to reflect that one of the classic signs of a fake was anachronistic sensibility. That is to say, the forger injects into his vision of the past some element of his time that is so much a part of his sensibility that he cannot perceive it. Thus, the Victorians faked Renaissance faces with a sentimentality that only they could not immediately see. I see, I nodded sagely. "'It did seem that cathedral had been struck with Sol Light, didn't it?' "'Yes. "'The trouble is, I have been able to find no sign of forgery "'in the physical properties of the painting.' "'She shook her head. "'And after three weeks of uninterrupted chemical analysis, "'that is beginning to worry me. "'But Freya,' I said, as something occurred to me, "'does all this have a bearing on the Musgrave murder?' "'I think so,' she replied. "'And if not, it is certainly more interesting.' "'But I believe it does.' "'I nodded. "'So what exactly have you found?' "'She smiled ironically. "'You truly want to know? "'Well, the best test for anachronisms "'is the polonium-210 radium-226 equilibrium. "'Please, Freya, no jargon.' "'Jargon?' "'She raised an eyebrow to scorn me. "'There is no such thing. "'Intelligence is like mould in a petri dish.' As it eats ever deeper into the agar of reality, language has to expand with it to describe what has been digested. Each speciality provides the new vocabulary for its area of feeding and gets accused of fabricating jargon by those who know no better. I am surprised to hear such nonsense from you. Or perhaps not. Very well, I said, hands up. Still, you must communicate your meaning to me. I shall. First— I analysed the canvas. The material and its weave matched the characteristics of the canvas made by the factory outside Paris that provided Monet throughout the painting of the Rouen Cathedral series. Both the fabric and the glue appear very old, though there is no precise dating technique for them. And there was no trace of solvents that might have been used to strip paint off a genuine canvas of the period. I then turned to the paint. Follow so far? she asked sharply. "'Paint?' "'You may proceed without further sarcasm, "'unless unable to control yourself. "'The palette of an artist as famous as Monet "'has been studied in detail, "'so that we know he preferred cadmium yellow "'to chromium yellow or Naples yellow, that he tended to use Prussian blue "'rather than cobalt blue, and so on. "'She tapped the flecks of blue "'at the base of the cathedral. "'Prussian blue. "'You've taken paint off the canvas?' "'How else test it?' "'But I took very small samples, I assure you. "'Whatever the truth concerning the work, "'it remains a masterpiece, and I would not mar it. "'Besides, most of my tests were on the white paint, "'of which there is a great quantity, as you can see.' "'Why the white paint?' "'I leaned over to stare more closely at the canvas. "'Because lead-white is one of the best dating tools we have.' The manufacturing methods used to make it changed frequently around Monet's time, and each change in method altered the chemical composition of the paint. After 1870, for instance, the cheaper zinc white was used to adulterate lead white, so there should be over 1% zinc in Monet's lead white. And is that what you found? Yes. The atomic absorption spectrum showed... She dug around in the pile of chart paper on the table. Well, take my word for it. I will. Nearly 12%. And the silver content for late 19th century lead white should be around four parts per million. The copper content about 60 parts per million. So it is with this paint. There is no insoluble antimony component as there would be if the paint had been manufactured after 1940. The X-ray diffraction pattern... She unrolled a length of chart paper and showed me where three sharp peaks in a row had been penned by the machine. It's exactly right, and there is the proper balance of polonium-210 and radium-226. That's very important, by the way, because when lead-white is manufactured, the radioactive balance of some of its elements is upset, and it takes a good 300 years for them to decay back to equilibrium. And this paint is indeed back to that equilibrium. So, the paints are Monet's, I concluded. Doesn't that prove the work authentic? Perhaps, Freya admitted. But as I was doing all this analysis, it occurred to me that a modern forger has just as much information concerning Monet's palette as I do. With a modern laboratory, it would be possible to use such information as a recipe, so to speak, and then to synthesise paints that would match the recipe exactly. Even the radioactively decayed lead white could be arranged by avoiding the procedures that disrupt the radioactive balance in the first place. Wouldn't that be terrifically complicated? Freya stared at me. Obviously, Nathaniel, we are dealing with a very, very meticulous faker here. But how else could it be done in this day and age? Why else do it at all? "'The complete faker must take care to anticipate every test available, "'and then, in a modern laboratory, "'create the appropriate results for every one of them. "'It's admirable.' "'Assuming there ever was such a forger,' I said dubiously, It "'seems to me that what you have actually done here has proved the painting genuine.' "'I don't think so. "'But even with these paints made by recipe, as you call them, "'the faker would still have to paint the painting.' Exactly. Conceive the painting and execute it. It becomes very impressive, I confess. She walked around the table to look at the work from the correct angle. I do believe this is one of the best of the Rouen Cathedral series, astonishing that a forger would be capable of it. That brings up another matter, I said. Doesn't this work have a 500-year-old pedigree? How could a whole history have been provided for it? Good question, but I believe I have discovered the way. Let's go upstairs. You interrupted my preparations for lunch, and I'm hungry. I followed her to her extensive kitchen, and sat in the window nook that overlooked the tiled rooftops of the lower city, while she finished chopping up the vegetables for a large salad. Do you know this painting's history? Freya asked, looking up from a dissected head of lettuce. I shook my head. Up until now, the thing has not been of overwhelming interest to me. A Confession of Faulty Aesthetics The work was photographed at the original exhibit in 1895, Durand-Ruel Photo 5828-L8451. All of the information appended to the photo fits our painting, same name, size, signature location. Then for a century it disappeared. Odd. "'but it turned out to have been in the estate "'of an Evans family in Aylesbury, England. "'When the family had some conservation work done on one corner "'it returned to public knowledge "'and was photographed for a dozen books "'of the twenty-first and twenty-second centuries. "'After that it slipped back into obscurity. "'But it is as well documented as any of the series "'belonging to private estates.' "'Exactly my point,' I said. "'How could such a history be forged?' As Frey mixed the salad, she smiled. I sat and thought about that for quite some time myself. But consider it freshly, Nathaniel. How do we know what we know of the past? Well, I said, somewhat at a loss. From data banks, I suppose, and books, documents, historians. From historians, she laughed. She provided us both with bowls and sat across from me. As I filled mine, she said, "'So we want to know something of the past. "'We go to our library and sit at its terminal. "'We call up General Reference Works or a bibliographic index, "'and we choose, if we want, books that we would like to have in our hands. "'We type in the appropriate code, our printer prints up the appropriate book, "'and the volume slides out of the computer into our waiting grasp.' She paused to fork down several mouthfuls of salad. "'So we learn about the past using computer programs. "'and a clever programmer, you see, can change a programme. "'It would be possible to insert extra pages into these old books on Monet "'and thus add the forged painting to the record of the past.' "'I paused, a cherry tomato hovering before my mouth. "'But I searched for an original of any of these books "'containing photos of our painting,' Freya said. "'I called all over Mercury.' and to several incunabulists in libraries on earth. You wouldn't believe the phone bill i have run up. But the initial printings of these art volumes were very small, and although first editions probably remain somewhere, they are not to be found. Certainly there are no first editions of these books on Mercury, and none immediately locatable on earth. It began to seem a very unlikely coincidence, as if these volumes contained pictures of our painting precisely because they existed only in the data banks, and thus could be altered without discovery. She attended to her salad, and we finished eating in silence. All the while my mind was spinning furiously, and when we were done I said, What about the original exhibit photo? She nodded, pleased with me. That, apparently, is genuine but the Durand-Ruel photos include four or five of paintings that have never been seen since. In that sense, the Rouen Cathedral series is a good one for a faker. From the first, it has never been clear how many cathedrals Monet painted. The usual number given is 32, but there are more in the Durand-Ruel list, and a faker could examine the list and use one of the lost items as a prescription for his fake. Providing a later history with the aid of these obscure art-books would result in a fairly complete pedigree. But could such an addition to the data-banks be made? It would be easiest done on earth, Freya said, but there is no close security guarding the banks containing old art-books. No one expects them to be tampered with. It's astonishing, I said with a wave of my fork. It's Baroque, it's Byzantine in its ingenuity. Yes, she said. Beautiful, in a way. However, I pointed out to her, you have no proof, only this perhaps over-complex theory. You have found no first edition of a book to confirm that the computer-generated volumes add Heidi's painting, and you have found no physical anachronism in the painting itself. Gloomily, she clicked her fork against her empty salad bowl, then rose to refill it. "'Is a problem,' she admitted. "'Also, I have been working on the assumption "'that Sandor Musgrave discovered evidence of the forgery, "'but I can't find it.' "'Never let it be said that Nathaniel Sebastian "'has not performed a vital role "'in Freya Grindevig's great feats of detection. "'I was the first to notice the anachronism of sensibility "'in Heidi's painting, "'and now I had a truly inspired idea.' He was pointing to the patio, I exclaimed. Musgrave, in his last moment, struggled to point to the patio. I had observed that, Freya said, unimpressed. But Heidi's patio, you know, it is formed out of the blocks of Dover Cliffs, and thus Musgrave indicated England. Is it not possible? The Monet was owned by Englishmen until Heidi purchased it. Perhaps Musgrave meant to convey that the original owners were the forgers. Freya's mouth hung open in surprise, and her left eye was squinted shut. I leapt from the window nook in triumph. I've solved it! I've solved a mystery at last! Freya looked up at me and laughed. Come now, Freya, you must admit I have given you the vital clue. She stood up, suddenly all business. "'Yes. Yes, indeed you have. "'Now, out with you, Nathaniel. I have work to do.' "'So did I give you the vital clue?' I asked. "'Musgrave was indicating the English owners?' "'As she ushered me to her door, Freya laughed. "'As a detective, your intuition is matched only by your confidence. "'Now leave me to work, and I will be in contact with you soon, I assure you.' "'And with that she urged me into the street.' and I was left to consider the case alone. Freya was true to her word, and only two days after our crucial luncheon she knocked on the door of my town villa. "'Come along,' she said. "'I've asked Arnold Oman for an appointment. "'I want to ask him some questions about the Evans family. "'The city is passing the Monet Museum, however, "'and he asked us to meet him out there.' "'I readied myself quickly, "'and we proceeded to North Station.' We arrived just in time to step across the gap between the two platforms, and then we were on the motionless deck of one of the outlying stations that Terminator is always passing. There we rented a car and sped west, paralleling the dozen massive cylindrical rails along which the city slides. Soon we had left Terminator behind, and when we were seventy or eighty kilometres into the night side of Mercury we turned to the north, to Monet Crater. Terminator's tracks lie very close to the thirtieth degree of latitude in the Northern Hemisphere, and Monet Crater is not far from them. We crossed Shakespeare Planitia rapidly, passing between craters named after the great artists, writers, and composers of Earth's glorious past, traversing a low pass between Brahms and Verdi, looking down at where Degas had crashed into the Brontes. I think I understand why a modern artist on Mercury might turn to forgery, Freya said, we are dwarfed by the past as we are by this landscape. But it is still a crime, I insisted. If it were done often, we would not be able to distinguish the authentic from the fake. Freya did not reply. I drove our car up a short rise, and we entered the sub garage of the Monet Museum, which is set deep into the southern rim of the immense crater named after the artist. One long wall of the museum is a window facing out over the crater floor so that the central knot of peaks is visible and the curving inner wall of the crater defines the horizon in the murky distance. Shutters slid down to protect these windows from the heat of Mercury's long day but now they were open and the black wasteland of the planet formed a strange backdrop to the colourful paintings that filled the long rooms of the museum. There were many Monet originals here but the canvases of the Rouen Cathedral series were almost all reproductions, set in one long gallery. As Freya and I searched for Arnold, we also viewed them. "'You see, they're not just various moments of a single day,' Freya said. "'Not unless it was a strange day for weather. "'The three reproductions before us all depicted foggy days.' Two bluish and underwater-looking, the third a bright burning off of yellow noontime fog. Obviously these were from a different day than the ones across the room, where a cool, clear morning gave way to a midday that looked as if the sun was just a few feet above the cathedral. The museum had classified the series in colour groups, blue group, white group, yellow group, and so on. To my mind that system was stupid. It told you nothing you couldn't immediately see. I myself classified them according to weather. There was a clear day that got very hot, a clear winter day, the air chill and pure, a foggy day, and a day when a rainstorm had grown and then broken. When I told Freya of my system she applauded it. So Heidi's painting goes from the king of the white group to the hottest moment of the hot day. Exactly. It's the most extreme, as far as sunlight blasting the stone into motes of colour. And thus the forger extends Monet's own thinking, you see, she said, a bit absently. But I don't see Arnold, and I think we have visited every room. Could he be late? We are already quite late ourselves. I wonder if he has gone back. It seems unlikely, I said. Purposefully we toured the museum one more time. And I ignored the color splashed canvases standing before the dark crater to search closely in all the various turns of the galleries. No Arnold. Come along, Freya said. I suspect he stayed in Terminator, and now I want to speak with him more than ever. So we returned to the garage, got back into our car, and drove out onto Mercury's bare baked surface once again. Half an hour later, we had Terminator's tracks in sight. They stretched before us from horizon to horizon. Twelve fat silvery cylinders set five metres above the ground on narrow pylons. To the east, rolling over the flank of the Wang Wei crater, so slowly that we could not perceive its movement without close attention, came the city itself. A giant clear half-egg filled with the colours of rooftops, gardens, and the grey stone of the buildings crowded the terraced dawn wall. We'll have to go west to the next station, I said. Then I saw something up on the city track nearest us. Spread-eagled over the top of the big cylinder was a human form, in a light green day suit. I stopped the car. Look! Freya peered out of a window. We'd better go investigate. We struggled quickly into the car's emergency day suits, clamped on the helmets and slipped through the car's lock onto the ground. A ladder led us up the nearest cylinder pylon and through a tunnel in the cylinder itself. Once on top, we could stand safely on the broad hump of the rail. The figure we had seen was only ten metres away from us, and we hurried to it. It was Arnold, spread in cruciform fashion over the cylinder's top, secured in place by three large suction plates that had been cuffed to his wrists and ankles, and then stuck to the cylinder. Arnold turned from his contemplation of the slowly approaching city and looked at us wide-eyed through his faceplate. Freya reached down and turned on his helmet intercom. Am I glad to see you, Arnold cried, voice harsh. These plates won't move. "Tied to the tracks, eh? Freya said. Yes. Who put you here? I don't know. I went out to meet you at the Marnet Museum, and the last thing I remember, I was in the garage there. When I came to, I was here. Does your head hurt?'' I inquired. ''Yes, like I was gassed, though not hit, but the the city had just came over the horizon a short time ago. Perhaps we could dispense with discussion until I'm freed?'' ''Relax,'' Freya said, nudging one of the plates with her boot. ''Are you sure you don't know who did this, Arnold?'' Of course, that's what I just said. Please, Freya, can't we talk after I get loose? In a hurry, Arnold? Freya asked. But of course. No need to be too worried, I assured him. If we cannot free you, the cowcatchers will be out to pry you loose. I tried lifting a plate but could not move it. Surely they'll find a way. It is their job, after all. True, Arnold said. Usually true. Said Freya. Arnold is probably not aware that the cowcatchers have become rather unreliable recently. Some weeks ago, a murderer tied his victim to a track just as you've been, Arnold, and then somehow disengaged the cowcatcher's sensors. The unfortunate victim was shaved into molecules by one of the sleeves of the city. It was kept quiet to avoid any attempted repetitions, but since then, the cowcatcher's sensors have continued to function erratically and two or three suicides have been entirely too successful. Perhaps this isn't the best moment to tell us about this, I suggested to Freya. Arnold choked over what I took to be his agreement. Well, Freya said, I thought I should make the situation clear. Now, listen, Arnold, we need to talk. Please, Arnold said, free me first, then talk. No, no, Terminator's only a kilometre away. Your perspective from that angle is deceptive, Freya told him. The city is at least three kilometres away. More like two, I said, as I could now make out individual rooftops under the dawn wall. In fact, the city glowed like a big glass lamp and illuminated the entire landscape with a faint green radiance. And at 3.4 kilometres an hour, Freya said, that gives us almost an hour, doesn't it? So listen to me, Arnold. The Monet Cathedral that you sold to Heidi is a fake. What? Arnold cried. It certainly is not, and I insist that this isn't the time. It is a fake. Now, I want you to tell me the truth, or I will leave you here to test the cowcatchers. She leaned over to stare down at Arnold face to face. I know who painted the fake as well. Helplessly, Arnold stared up at her. He put you on the track here, didn't he? Arnold squeezed his eyes shut, nodded slowly. I think so. So, if you want to be let up, you must swear to me that you will abide by my plan for dealing with this forger. You will follow my instructions, understand? I understand. Do you agree? I... Agree, Arnold said, forcing the words out. Now let me up. All right, Freya straightened. How are we going to do it? I asked. Freya shrugged. I don't know. At this, Arnold howled. He shouted recriminations. He began to wax hysterical. Shut up, Freya exclaimed. You're beginning to sound like a man who has made too many bright side crossings. These suction plates are little different from children's darts. She leaned down, grasped a plate and pulled up with all of her considerable strength. No movement. Hmm, she said thoughtfully. Freya, Arnold said. One moment, she replied, and walked back down the hump of the cylinder to the ladder tunnel, there to disappear down it. She's left me, Arnold groaned, left me to be crushed. I don't think so, I said. No doubt she has gone to the car to retrieve some useful implement. I kicked heartily at the plate holding Arnold's feet to the cylinder, and even managed to slide it a few centimetres down the curve, which had the effect of making Arnold suddenly taller. But other than that, I made no progress. When Freya returned, she carried a bar, bent at one end, Crowbar, she explained to us. But where did you get it? From the cast tool chest, naturally. Here. She stepped over Arnold. If we just insinuate this end of it under your cuffs, I believe we'll have enough leverage to do the trick. The cylinder being curved, the plate's grasp should be weakened about here. She jammed the short end of the bar under the edge of the footplate's cuff and pulled on the upper end of it. Over the intercom, breathless silence. Her fair cheeks reddened, then suddenly Arnold's legs flew up and over his head, leaving his arms twisted and his neck at an awkward angle. At the same time, Freya staggered off the cylinder, performed a neat somersault and landed on her feet on the ground below us. While she made her way back up to us, I tried to ease the weight on Arnold's neck, but by his squeaks of distress I judged he was still uncomfortable. Freya rejoined us, and quickly wedged her crowbar under Arnold's right wrist cuff and freed it. That left Arnold hanging down the side of the cylinder by his left wrist, but with one hard crank, Freya popped that plate free as well, and Arnold disappeared. By leaning over we could just see him, collapsed in a heap on the ground. "'Are you all right?' Freya asked. He groaned for an answer. I looked up and saw that Terminator was nearly upon us, Almost involuntarily, I proceeded to the ladder tunnel. Freya followed me, and we descended to the ground. Disturbing not to be able to trust the cowcatchers, I remarked as my heartbeat slowed. Nathaniel, Freya said, looking exasperated. I made all that up. You know that. Ah, oh, yes, of course. As we joined Arnold, he was just struggling to a seated position. My ankle, he said. Then the green wash of light from Terminator disappeared, as did the night sky. The cities slid over us, and we were encased in a gloom interrupted by an occasional running light. All twelve of the city's big tracks had disappeared, swallowed by the sleeves in the city's broad metallic foundation. Only the open slots at the loud passage over the pylons showed where the sleeves were. For a moment in the darkness it seemed we stood between two worlds held apart by a field of pylons. Meanwhile, the city slid over us soundlessly, propelled by the expansion of the tracks themselves. You see, the alloy composing the tracks is capable of withstanding the 425 degrees centigrade heat of the mercurial day, but the cylinders do expand just a bit in this heat. Here in the Terminator is the forward edge of the cylinder's expansion, and the smooth-sided sleeves above us at that moment fit so snugly over the cylinders that as the cylinders expand, the city is pushed forwards towards the cooler, thinner railing to the west, and so the city is propelled by the sun, while never being fully exposed to it. The motive force is so strong, in fact, that resistance to it arranged in the sleeves generates the enormous reserves of energy that Terminator sold so successfully to the rest of civilization. Though I had understood this mechanism for decades, I had never before observed it from this angle and despite the fact that I was somewhat uneasy to be standing under our fair city, I was also fascinated to see its broad, knobby silver underside gliding majestically westward. For a long time I did nothing but stare at it. "'We'd better get to the car,' Freya said. "'The sun will be up very soon after the city passes, and then we'll be in trouble.' Since Arnold was still cuffed to the plates and had at least a sprained ankle, walking with him slung between us was a slow process." While we were at it, the dawn wall passed over us, and suddenly the twelve tracks and the stars between them were visible again. "'Now we'd better hurry,' said Freya. Above us, the very top of the dawn wall flared a brilliant white. Sunlight was striking that surface, only two hundred metres above us. Dawn was not far away. In the glare of reflected light we could see the heavily tire-printed ground under the cylinders perfectly— and for a while our eyes were nearly overwhelmed. Look, Freya cried, shielding her eyes with one hand and pointing up the sun-washed slope of the city wall with the other. It's the inspiration for our Monet, don't you think? Despite our haste, the great Rouen Cathedral of Mercury pulled away from us. This won't do, Freya said. Only a bit more to the car, but we have to hurry. Here, Arnold, let me carry you and she ran, carrying Arnold piggyback the rest of the way to the car. As we manoeuvred him through the lock, a tongue of the sun's corona licked briefly over the horizon, blinding us. I felt scorched. My throat was dry. We were now at the dawn edge of the Terminator zone, and east-facing slopes burned white while west-facing slopes were still a perfect black, creating a chaotic patchwork that was utterly disorienting. We rolled into the car after Arnold and quickly drove west, passing the city, returning to the night zone, and arriving at a station where we could make the transfer into the city again. Freya laughed at my expression as we crossed the gap. ''Well, Nathaniel,'' she said, ''home again.'' The very next day Freya arranged for those concerned with the case to assemble on Heidi's patio again. Four police officials were there and one took notes. The painting of the Cathedral of Rouen was back in its place on the villa wall. George Butler and Harvey Washburn stood before it, while Arnold, Oman and Heidi paced by the patio's ledge. Lucinda and Delorance, the cook, watched from behind the patio bar. Freya called us to order. She was wearing a severe blue dress, and her white blonde hair was drawn into a tight braid that fell down her back. Sternly, she said, I will suggest to you an explanation for the death of Sandor Musgrave. All of you, except for the police and Mr. Sebastian, were to one extent or another suspected of killing him, so I know this will be of great interest to you. Naturally, there was an uneasy stir among those listening. Several of you had reason to hate Musgrave, or to fear him. The man was a blackmailer by profession, and on earth he had obtained evidence of illegalities in the merger Heidi and George made five years ago. That gave him leverage over both of you. This, and motives for the rest of you, were well established during the initial investigation, and we need not recapitulate the details. It is also true, however, that subsequent investigations have revealed that all of you had alibis for the moment when Musgrave was struck down. Lucinda and Laurence were together in the kitchen until Lucinda left to investigate the shout she heard. This was confirmed by caterers hired for the Sol-Day party. Heidi left the patio shortly before Musgrave was found, but she was consulting with Hugh and the orchestra during the time in question. George Butler went into the house with Arnold Oman, but they were together for most of the time they were inside. Eventually George left to go to the bathroom, but luckily for him the orchestra's first clarinetist was there to confirm his presence. And fortunately for Mr. Oman, I myself could see him from the patio standing in the hallway until the very moment when Lucinda screamed. "'So you see?' Freya paused, Ida's one by one, ran a finger along the frame of the big painting. The problem took on a new aspect. It became clear that while many had a motive to kill Musgrave— "'No one had the opportunity. "'This caused me to reconsider. "'How, exactly, had Musgrave been killed? "'He was struck on the head by the frame of one of Heidi's hall mirrors. "'Though several mirrors were broken in the melee following Lucinda's screams, "'we know the one that Musgrave was struck with. "'It was at the bend in the hallway leading from the atrium to the patio, "'and it was only a couple of metres away from a step down in the hallway.' Freya took a large house-plan from a table and set it before the policeman. Sandor Musgrave, you will recall, was new to Mercury. He had never seen a Sol-Day celebration. When the great gates opened and the reflected light filled this villa, my suggestion is that he was overwhelmed by fright. Lucinda heard him cry for help. Perhaps he thought the house was burning down. He panicked, rushed out of the study and blindly began to run for the patio— Unable to see the step down or the mirror, he must have pitched forward, and his left temple struck the frame a fatal blow. He crawled a few steps farther, then collapsed and died. Heidi stepped forward. So Musgrave died by accident? This is my theory, and it explains how it was that no one had the opportunity to kill him. In fact, no one did kill him. She turned to the police. I trust you will follow up on this suggestion? Yes, said the one taking notes. Death declared accidental by consulting investigator. Proceed from there. He exchanged glances with his colleagues. We are satisfied this explains the facts of the case. Heidi surveyed the silent group. To tell you the truth, I'm very relieved. She turned to DeLorence. Let's open the bar. It would be morbid to celebrate an accidental death, but... Here we can say we are celebrating the absence of a murder. The others gave a small cheer of relief, and we surrounded the bartender. A few days later, Freya asked me to accompany her to North Station. I need your assistance. Very well, I said. Are you leaving Terminator? Seeing someone off. When we entered the station's big waiting room, she inspected the crowd then cried, "'Arnold!' and crossed the room to meet him. Arnold saw her and grimaced. "'Oh, Arnold!' she said, and leaned over to kiss him on each cheek. "'I'm very proud of you.' Arnold shook his head and greeted me mournfully. "'You're a hard woman, Freya,' he told her. "'Stop behaving so cheerfully. "'You make me sick. "'You know perfectly well this is exile of the worst sort.' Arnold, Freya said, Mercury is not the whole of civilization. In fact it could be considered culturally dead, an immense museum to the past that has no real life at all. Which is why you choose to live here, I'm sure, he said bitterly. But of course it does have some pleasures, but the really vital centres of any civilization are on the frontier, Arnold, and that's where you're going. Arnold looked completely disgusted. But Arnold, I said, where are you going? Pluto, he said curtly. Pluto, I exclaimed. But whatever for? What will you do there? He shrugged. Dig ditches, I suppose. Freya laughed. You certainly will not. She addressed me. "'Arnold has decided very boldly, I might add, "'to abandon his safe career as a dealer here on Mercury "'to become a real artist on the frontier. "'But why?' "'Freya wagged a finger at Arnold. "'You must write us often.' "'Arnold made a strangled growl. "'Damn you, Freya! I refuse! I refuse to go! "'You don't have that option,' Freya said. "'Remember the chalk, Arnold?' The chalk was your signature. Arnold hung his head defeated. The city interfaced with the spaceport station. It isn't fair, Arnold said. What am I going to do out on those barbaric outworlds? You're going to live, Freya said sternly. You're going to live and you're going to paint. No more hiding, understand? I, at any rate, was beginning to. "'You should be thanking me profusely,' Freya went on. "'But I'll concede you're upset and wait for gratitude by mail.' She put her hand on Arnold's shoulder and pushed him affectionately towards the crossing line. "'Remember to write.' "'But,' Arnold said, a panicked expression on his face. "'But—' "'Enough,' Freya said. "'Begone, or else!' Arnold sagged and stepped across the divide between the stations. Soon the city left the spaceport station behind. "'Well,' Freya said, "'that's done.' I stared at her. "'You just helped a murderer to escape.' She lifted an eyebrow. "'Exile is a very severe punishment. "'In fact, in my cultural tradition, "'it was the usual punishment for murder "'committed in anger or self defense I waved a hand dismissively. This isn't the Iceland of Eric the Red, and it wasn't self-defence. Sandal Musgrave was outright murdered. Well, she said, I never liked him. I told you before, she has no sense of right and wrong. It is a serious defect in a detective. I could only wave my arms in incoherent outrage, and my protests have never carried much weight with Freya, who claims not even to believe them. We left the station. What's that you were saying to Arnold about chalk? I said, curiosity getting the better of me. That's the clue you provided, Nathaniel. Somewhat transformed. As you reminded me, Musgrave was pointing at the patio, and Heidi's patio is made of a block of Dover Cliffs. Dover Cliffs, as you know, are composed of chalk, so I returned to the painting and cut through the back to retrieve samples of the chalk used in the underdrawing which had been revealed to me by infrared photography. She turned a corner and led me uptown. Chalk, you see, has its own history of change. In Monet's time, chalk was made from natural sources, not from synthetics. Sure enough, the chalk I took from the canvas was a natural chalk, but natural chalk, being composed of marine ooze, is littered with the fossil remains of unicellular algae called coccoliths. These coccoliths are different depending on the source of the chalk. Monet used Rouen chalk, appropriately enough, which was filled with the coccoliths Maslovella barnesae and Cricolithus pematoidens. The coccoliths in our painting, however, are neococcoliths dubious. Very dubious indeed, for this is a North American chalk, first mined in Utah in 1924. "'So Monet couldn't have used this chalk? "'And there you had your proof that the painting is a fake?' "'Exactly.' "'I said doubtfully, "'It seems a subtle clue for the dying Musgrave to conceive of.' "'Perhaps,' Freya said cheerfully, "'perhaps he was only pointing in the direction of the patio "'by the accident of his final movements. "'But it was sufficient that the coincidence gave me the idea "'the solution of a crime often depends upon imaginary clues.' But how did you know Arnold was a forger, I asked? And why, after taking the trouble to concoct all those paints, did he use the wrong chalk? The two matters are related. It could be that Arnold only knew he needed a natural chalk, and used the first convenient supply without knowing there was a difference between them. In that case, it was a mistake, his only mistake. But it seems unlike Arnold to me and I think rather that it was the forger's signature. In effect, the forger said, if you take a slide of the chalk trapped underneath the paint and magnify it 5,000 times with an electron microscope, you will find me. This chalk never used by Monet is my sign. For on some level, every forger hopes to be discovered, if only in the distant future, to receive credit for the work. "'So I knew we had a forger on Mercury, "'and I was already suspicious of Arnold "'since he was the dealer who brought the painting to Mercury, "'and since he was the only guest at Heidi's party "'with the opportunity to kill Musgrave. "'He was missing during the crucial moments.' "'You are a liar. "'And it seems Arnold is getting desperate. "'I searched among his recent bills "'and found one for three suction plates, "'so when we found him on the track I was quite sure.' He stuck himself to the track? Yes. The one on his right wrist was electronically controlled, so after setting the other two, he tripped the third between his teeth. He hoped that we would discover him there after missing him at the museum, and think there was someone else who wished him harm. And if not, the cowcatchers would pull him free. It was a silly plan, but he was desperate after I set up that appointment with him. When I confronted him with all this after we rescued him from the tracks, he broke down and confessed. Sandor Musgrave had discovered that the Monet was a fake while blackmailing the Evans family in England, and after forcing Heidi to give him a job, he worked on the painting in secret until he found proof. Then he blackmailed Arnold into bankruptcy, and when on Sol Day he pressed Arnold for more money, Arnold lost his composure, and took advantage of the confusion caused by the opening of the Great Gates "'to smack Musgrave on the head with one of Heidi's mirrors.' "'I wagged a finger under her nose. "'And you set him free. "'You have gone too far this time, Freya Grindelig.' "'She shook her head. "'If you consider Arnold's case a bit longer, you might change your mind. "'Arnold Oman has been the most important art dealer on Mercury for over sixty years.' He sold the Vermeer collection to George Butler, and the Goyas to Terminator West Gallery, and the Pissaros to the museum in Homer Crater, and those Chinese landscapes you love so much to the city park, and the Kandinsky's to the Lion of the Greys. Most of the finest paintings on Mercury were brought here by Arnold Oman. So? So how many of those, do you think, were painted by Arnold himself? I stopped dead in the street, stunned at the very idea. But but that only makes it worse, inestimably worse. It means there are fakes all over the planet. Probably so. And no one wants to hear that. But it also means Arnold Oman is a very great artist, and in our age that is no easy feat. Can you imagine the withering reception his work would have received if he had done original work? It would have ended up like Harvey Washburn and all the rest of them who wander around galleries like dogs. The great art of the past crashes down on our artists like meteors so that their minds resemble the blasted landscapes we roll over. Now Arnold has escaped that fate and his work is universally admired, even loved. That Monet, for instance, it isn't just that it passes for one of the Cathedral series. It could be argued that it is the best of them. Now is this a level of greatness that Arnold could have achieved, would have been allowed to achieve, if he had done original work on this museum planet? Impossible. He was forced to forge old masters to be able to fully express his genius. All this is no excuse for forgery or murder. But Freya wasn't listening. Now that I have exiled him, he may go on forging old paintings, but he may begin painting something new. That possibility surely justifies ameliorating his punishment for killing such a parasite as Musgrave. And there is Mercury's reputation as art museum of the system to consider. I refused to honour her opinions with a reply, and looking round I saw that during our conversation she had led me far up the terraces. Where are we going?' To Heidi's, she said, and she had the grace to look a little shamefaced. For a moment anyway. I need your help moving something. Oh no. Well, Freya explained, when I told Heidi some of the facts of the case, she insisted on giving me a token of her gratitude, and she overrode all my refusals, so I, I was forced to accept. She rang the wall bell. You're joking. I said. Not at all. Actually, I think Heidi preferred not to own a painting she knew to be fake, you see. So I did her a favour by taking it off her hands. When DeLorence let us in, we found he had almost finished securing Rouen Cathedral sun effect in a big plastic box. We'll finish this, Freya told him. While we completed the boxing, I told Freya what I thought of her conduct. "'You've taken liberties with the law. "'You lied right and left.' "'Well, boxed,' she said. "'Let's go before Heidi changes her mind.' "'And I suppose you're proud of yourself.' "'Of course. "'A lot of lab work went into this.' "'We manoeuvred the big box through the gate and into the street "'and carried it upright between us, like a short, flat coffin. "'We reached Freya's villa,' And immediately she set to work unboxing the painting. When she had freed it, she set it on top of a couch, resting against the wall. Shaking with righteous indignation, I cried, That thing isn't a product of the past, it isn't authentic, it is only a fake! Claude Monet didn't paint it! Freya looked at me with a mild frown, as if confronting a slightly dense and very stubborn child. So what? After I had lectured her on her immorality a good deal more, and heard all of her patient agreement, I ran out of steam. Well, I muttered, you may have destroyed all my faith in you and damaged Mercury's art heritage forever, but at least I'll get a good story out of it. This was some small comfort. I believe I'll call it the case of the 33rd Cathedral of Rouen. What's this? She exclaimed. No, of course not. And then she insisted that I keep everything she had told me that day a secret. I couldn't believe it. Bitterly, I said, You're like those forgers. You want somebody to witness your cleverness, and I'm the one who's stuck with it. She immediately agreed, but went on to list all of the reasons no one else could ever learn of the affair. How so many people would be hurt, including her, I added acerbically how so many valuable collections would be ruined, how her plan to transform Arnold into a respectable, honest Plutonian artist would collapse, and so on and so forth, for nearly an hour. Finally I gave up and conceded to her wishes, so that the upshot of it was, I promised not to write down a single word concerning this particular adventure of ours, and I promised furthermore to say nothing of the entire affair, and to keep it a complete secret— forever and ever but I don't suppose it will do any harm to tell you
2: there you go don't forget copyright is Kim Stanley Robinson Stan sir thank you very much and Peter thank you so much there you go, that is Starship Sofa's Auro's Rice Show 140. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, they approved. proved, that is why Starship Sofa is as good as I say it is. Do you know what I mean? You know, that interview with Jack Vance, Kim Stanley Robinson story, and that fine narration by Peter Seaton Clark, doesn't get any better. This whole thing is put together by fans... That's, you know, that's the kind of the bottom line here. And I hope you just kind of appreciate what we do, you know, support us. And don't forget, we are Starship sovas up for a Hugo Award this year. First time ever in the history of the Hugo Awards has a podcast been nominated. You know, that is such a buzz for me. Oh, it certainly is. But, you know, we need to get, we need to win. So vote for it. If you're going to AussieCon or if you're a supporting member, give us a vote. There you go, that is, Oral Delights, 140. Do pass the word on. Until next week, just like they say, night from me.
0: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Storage of Sofa. Evacuation procedure
4: initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.